This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, a small conference event for AEC professionals and technology providers to discuss industry trends and ideas together. It's put on by the fine folks at Avail. You can learn more about the upcoming invite-only events during this episode. This episode is brought to you by Troxel Plus Membership. Learn about the benefits of membership and get your limited-time launch offer savings at trxl.co slash launch 20. There's no spaces in that, trxl.co slash launch 20. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. In this episode, I talk with Radu Gaday. Radu discusses his background in architecture and how it led him to pursue a career in building tools and workflows for the industry, which led to his current role as CTO of COPE. You might remember COPE from episode 111 with Mark Thorley and David Flynn, in which we talked about it being a platform that aims to accelerate the adoption of offsite construction. Today, Radu explains COPE's vision to provide a software platform for designers, builders, and manufacturers to transition from design to construction using prefabricated products for the offsite construction market. Radu also talks about the challenges that contractors and architects face when trying to adopt offsite construction, including the lack of visibility into available construction systems and the risks associated with using new systems on a project. However, and this isn't a bad however, he notes that COPE's platform does not require people to completely revolutionize their workflows, which you'll hear more about in this episode. Overall, this episode provides insight into the world of offsite construction and how COPE is working to make it easier for designers and builders to adopt it. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Radu Gaday. Radu, welcome to the podcast. Great to, great to see you. Great to meet you. And I'm excited to have a conversation with you. You are the CTO at COPE. And we've had Mark Thorley and David Flynn previously on the podcast. And they talked about the vision of COPE and, and what you guys are doing and the, the strategy behind it. And today we're going to talk more about the technical side. So this is going to be a, a great conversation. I would love it if, before we get into that, if you could give a backstory on how you've got to where you are, like what, what paint a picture of what that journey has been like for you in, uh, in your career. For sure. Um, first off, very happy to be on the show. I've been a long time listener, so, uh, it's, uh, going to be slightly awkward to see my own name pop up there, but, uh, it's exciting. Um, so giving you a bit of backstory of, uh, um, how I got to to where I am. Uh, I guess I have a slightly unusual or uh, different uh, path to to what you would see most uh, BIM managers turned techies uh, uh, have taken over the years. So uh, I was born in Romania and I grew up there and did my high school education there. And one of the unique things about that is um, I went to a high school that's very uh, focused on math and computer science. So we were, I did four years of C++ and one year of SQL wow. uh, you know, before even finishing okay. high school. So they start you off early at 14 
and you know you do something like 10 hours of computer science a week uh, so it's that kind of uh, place so I, you know, I'd already written quite a bit of code by the time I was uh, 18 and, uh, you know, you even have a, a programmer's diploma for that. Uh, and I didn't want to go into uh, tech uh, because at uh, that point in time and in that place, it mostly meant accounting software or, uh, you know, ERPs or, um, you know, more traditional software like that. So I decided to, to go into architecture instead. Um, so I trained like a madman for a couple of years to try and pass the architecture school exam, which consisted of uh, freehand drawing and some technical mm -hmm. drawing. Uh, you know, cool things like trying to do a boolean of a cylinder with a sphere by hand on right. pen and paper. Right. Uh, still very traditional back home, right? And yeah, I, uh, eventually I actually uh, applied to a university in the UK and that's where I studied my bachelor and master's in architecture in uh, the UK. So I moved when I was 18, studied there and then started working in architecture practices. Um, because I had this bit of a background in software, one of the things I did uh, early on was um, obviously learning CAD and uh, you know advanced tools to kind of help me in my architectural education. So by the end of my first year, I was very fluent in 3D Max and I started freelancing, doing V-Ray renters for other people and things like that. Uh, and naturally that meant that by the time it came to my first job, I knew Revit quite well. And it was one of the reasons uh, I managed to land that job was mm. to uh, not just be an architectural designer, but also help to practice, uh, adopt uh, BIM and uh, move to Revit and these okay. kind of things. Cool. So I started my career as an architect, essentially working on mainly educational buildings, so schools, and then later on uh, high-rise residential. But throughout that whole architectural career, I was also doing the, the BIM side. So I was half and half between the two, two roles, up until the point where I was like, enough is enough, uh, you know, got to pick yeah. one. Uh, it was too much work to try and do both. And I decided to go down the BIM route full time. And that's, uh, that's when I joined uh, Grimshaw okay. uh, to, to head up BIM at their London office. And yeah, that was a, that was a, a wild couple of years. It was very interesting work, very uh, talented, passionate people. I learned a lot there. We did some very cool things. And it's also how I met Mark and Dave yeah, eventually. Right. Um, and yeah, following that, uh, I was building more and more automations and tools. I started getting more in, into my original love of programming, essentially. Mm -hmm. So uh, I kind of started doing that on the side a bit and then at work and eventually realized, actually, this is, uh, this is kind of what I want to yeah. do. Okay. <laughs> cool. So yeah, so leaving, uh, leaving Grimshaw, I, I went... Uh, full on on the tech side of uh, building uh, tools and products for okay. AEC, essentially. And that's how we eventually started MatterLab and Cope. Right. It, it's always interesting to me to hear people's story about kind of this, especially when it includes the architectural aspect to it and not coming to architecture from the outside, yeah. but coming from architecture to tech. And I think uh -huh. that's a common thread in our industry as well, in the people who come on this show, yeah. for sure, that there's this kind of initial architect in everybody. And then they pick this, they pick this specialty 
And I think it's interesting when someone like you, I've done a similar thing, is step outside of the practice of architecture to create something for architects. And that to me is always, I don't know what the right word for this is, but it, it's like working, I, 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 I frame it as work, working on the profession rather than working in the profession uh, and, mm -hmm. and trying to have yeah. a bigger impact throughout the profession or for it, you know, at scale, as many people as you can affect as possible for them to have better outcomes in their practice. And I, I, I always love hearing stories like that. You also mentioned 3D, that, you said yeah, 3D a, Max, right? A, and, and, and it's like, yeah, I learned 3D Studio before it was Max and that was running on DOS. And it just brings yeah. back all these memories of, of when I was in college. So I, I'm totally dating myself, right? But it's a, uh, that's also fun to hear the tools that people grew up on. You know, I had a, I guess, an interesting relationship with these tools uh, in architecture schools where um, my colleagues at one point, I think this was in my master's, they were uh, quite uh, fascinated by Grasshopper um, and what it could do and tools like that. And, uh, you know, it was the first time I was exposed to it. And uh, to me, it was like, okay, you're just chaining some functions here. Uh, okay. And I just moved on naturally. Uh, the, the ecosystem at that point in time wasn't something that attracted me. And uh, I was very focused on the actual architectural education and, uh, you know, the design side of my brain, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, obviously, eventually came back to the, the, the programming right. site. And I have to say that Dynamo was actually one of the gateways that kind of brought me back. Uh, to it. Yeah, I could imagine. I kind of refound the joy of, of doing And that. being a BIM manager and at Grimshaw, I'm sure was there was a lot of heavy Revit work. I'm sure there was still a lot of heavy, there is a lot of heavy Grasshopper work as well. But like when you're actually building tools is, yeah. to deliver the construction document side of the of the equation, you're heavily going to be investing yeah. in, in Dynamo inside of Revit. Yeah, and we had uh, you know heavy usage of both sure. sides essentially there, but I, I think it comes back to that nice framing you had of not working on the architecture itself, but uh, working to help the teams that do the architecture yeah. essentially, and and that was uh, uh, to me it's a fairly natural segue, I guess, from doing that BIM work and helping the teams to building the tools that help the teams. Yeah, and and there's there's this whole like architecture school trains people to be designers. And very few people in the architecture industry are designers. There aren't that many designers and because there's more, there's all these other jobs to do. And uh, I think it's an interesting pivot. Like you, you mentioned it earlier, like you were, you were using the design side of your brain, right? And you're still doing that, but you're doing that to design tools and workflows and, and automations and things for people to accomplish their tasks. And so I think it's still a great way to express or, or it's a it's an expression of that passion to be able to implement tool design, as it were, for others. And and I think that's that's a cool outlet. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's a, it's a very creative process, actually, uh, bringing these tools to life. Uh, you know, you've got obviously the engineering software engineering side of it. But there's also the, the user experience side. There's all of these different facets of it. That means I am actually able to bring both of those experiences I've had together to kind of uh, try and uh, come up with something that's uh, really helpful. It's a very architectural approach. I mean, you have to synthesize yeah. all of the different inputs into something, right? And sometimes it's a physical 
environment as architecture. Sometimes it's a tool and you're still have to think through all the different aspects of what people want, what people need. There's a series of trade-offs in there versus development time. And, and there, yep. there's so many things that go into that plus user experience. What does it feel like to use the tool? What is how there's so many pieces to that it is actually, I, I appreciate what yeah. you're saying about it being kind of this architectural process as well. Yeah, I think that's why you uh, you see quite a few ex-architects in uh, product management mm -hmm. or UX mm -hmm. design because it is that role where you're trying to bring everything together uh, uh, and kind of orchestrate everything yeah. uh, into its final shape. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about what you're doing specifically at Cope with the tools that you're you're basically the CTO. You are the CTO at Cope. And tell us about what you're yes, doing. So there. there's... Yeah, so there's uh, three of us co-founders, Mark, David, and myself, and uh, you know we've uh, kind of split the roles between us. So uh, I work as our, our CTO, essentially looking after our technology strategy and product development. So all the product we're building, it's it's part of my, my group. Uh, we actually build the software, and you know take care of that entire end-to-end -end process essentially. So um, everything from uh, uh, you know having our PMs uh, come up with features, uh, then design the UX for it, uh, test with users, build the software, deploy it to our cloud, uh, the, the whole end-to-end uh, -end experience, essentially. Great. And, and so maybe you can walk us through what COPE does, because this isn't something we spent a lot of time on when I talked to Mark and David. That was a big picture vision for the industry. There were some larger yep. buckets kind of established about a marketplace and talking about, you know, connecting design to fabrication and modular construction. And, and there, there was a lot of kind of big picture stuff, but I want to get more nuts and bolts specific with you about what, yep. and, and maybe let's go back and say, like, cause you had an initial vision and I'm wondering if that has changed over mm -hmm. time. How things have changed over time because change always happens, right? It's it's you can't can't perfectly yeah. predict where you're going to end up. So maybe take us on a journey of of what you've been doing with Cope over the last several years. Yeah, it's a hundred percent changed over time, but I would say that the shape of it has changed, but not the vision itself. So we we actually had this vision quite early on, and we haven't wavered much uh, from it of building a a platform to accelerate the adoption of offsite construction. So, um, you know, we were, we started off as a consultancy, uh, building products and tools for uh, our clients, and then gradually building things for ourselves, uh, right? And one of the things we, we saw in doing this was um, people wanting to move to offsite construction, whether they're contractors, architects, or, you know, manufacturers, but not necessarily having the means to do so, the tools or the sure. know-how or the experience. Uh, there were various different kind of roadblocks to them doing that. So we wanted, we had this vision of like, okay, we can build something here that uh, kind of bridges that gap in the same way, well, addresses the same challenges that we had as an industry adopting BIM, right? Everyone wanted to do it, but there wasn't like a one button solution to how to do it. So could we could we have another one of those challenges on our hand with uh, with offsite construction, and if you know our 
our thesis is that yes, it's it's exactly what that will be. So we have to build something to help it make it easier, mm-hmm. essentially, for people to mm-hmm. move to that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's still in that vein of helping designers build, design and builders build, and uh, um, you know, not necessarily building things ourselves um, in terms of physical construction, but providing a software platform for people to be able to do that. So we started off with this vision of, um, you know, going from a, all the way from a, a site to a finished building and employing offsite construction at every step of the way and doing a lot of the heavy lifting through computational design and generative design and all of these uh, other techniques. And we haven't really wavered from that much. Uh, we, we have, we actually have a sketch of a, on a whiteboard that we did back in January, 2020, I think, um, of all the components that would be needed and all the moving pieces. And we thought it was too ambitious at the mm-hmm. time. So we said, okay, what's the smallest version of this we could build? Uh, and we started with what we now call our workflow engine, which is basically a, a, a computation engine in the cloud. Think of it as Dynamo mm-hmm. in the cloud, mm-hmm. if you will, right? Where instead of having very small nodes that deal with, uh, you know, make a cube or make a rectangle, we have, we're working at a kind of a, the next level of abstraction where you're dealing with products or uh, systems that you apply to a building. So you're dealing with like, okay, the wall system or the internal partitions or the floor mm-hmm. session. And you orchestrate these things together into a workflow to be able to then automate uh, this transition from design to construction using prefabricated uh, products and techniques. This episode is brought to you by Avail. Avail is the content management system you deserve. With its beautifully simple interface, Avail makes it easy to manage, organize, find, and use your information. Designed by designers for designers and engineers, the Avail platform takes advantage of visual acuity, allowing for a visual audience to identify what they need in a couple of clicks. Avail is designed to serve any content type from any file location and allow for simple, fast deployment of your content. Plus, thanks to powerful integrations with Revit and other applications, you can seamlessly incorporate Avail into all your workflows. Say goodbye to the headache of locating and managing content and say hello to efficiency. To learn more, visit getavail.com. Avail, the information you need faster. So how prevalent are prefabrication outfits where you're targeting i you, i assume you're really based out of the uk so you're really targeting uk based contractors or prefab uh, facilities and, and companies so it, there's got to be a market there and i'm just wondering because i th- there are some in the united states as well but i i can't imagine that there's enough saturation in that market here to and you tell me i mean maybe i'm completely wrong but um there, there's got to be it has to be a pretty big market for you to to chase after that so so specifically it yeah it is a it is a very big market and i think it's only going to sure. get bigger uh, and one one of the reasons for that is adoption of these products and and ways of building uh has been hampered you know by a couple of challenges and that's what we're trying to address so if we're successful uh with, with our endeavor we will make the market bigger as well. We will help everyone use these things more and they will kind of 
you know, have a snowball effect sure. almost. Um, we are most prevalent uh, in the UK and the US at the moment. Okay. So we have customers on both sides of the pond. And yeah, I guess there are differences between the two markets. So in the UK, you would see products like precast concrete slabs used a bit more um, or, you know, different wall cassettes. In the US, you might have different names. You might call, you know, drywall versus plasterboard and things like that. But you, you might use a lot more timber framing uh, systems for offsite. But I think there's still a heavy usage on both sides. Um, what's not, it's just not visible essentially. Um, so contractors are using these systems, but a lot of times they only use one or two systems that they know of or that they've worked with mm -hmm. before. Um, or that they've uh, seen uh, their colleague use before, essentially. So there's a real barrier to finding other systems that you might be using and adopting them because it's a risk, obviously, on a project if, uh, to, to use a system you've never used before. And the on the architectural side, there's also not a lot of knowledge of these systems either. And the, we, we call this challenge the, the visibility challenge. Uh, that you don't have visibility into what the supply chain has to mm -hmm. offer and what syst what construction systems you might be able to actually make use of to improve the, the outcome of your building. And, and I think a lot of contractors are probably coming from a place of well, obviously a long history and experience in the industry and they probably came through a trade, right? They specialized in a trade, but now you're talking about orchestrating as a GC, a lot of trades together plus new ways of building right and so to it has this compounding effect of risk like you're talking about because when you're talking about prefabricated thing you're you're talking about assemblies you're talking about even modules right and you're not talking about going in to do a job that is a very specific trade on a larger job site you're talking about creating products and delivering through logistics those products onto site and they're because they're assemblies, they're probably big products, right? That get delivered to these sites. And so it yeah. is probably a, a whole new world for a lot of contractors out there. But I'd be interested to hear like what, like you say, it's it's only getting bigger. What is that adoption looking like? What is that curve looking like? I think there's a, there's a couple of blog posts on our, on our uh, websites that kind of uh, talk about the adoption and, uh, you know, give you some, some metrics that I don't have mm -hmm. off the top of my head, but to, to kind of paint a picture, uh, I think one of the th things that I'm we're most excited about for COPE is it doesn't require people to change their workflows uh, uh, and completely revolutionize how they work. So what I mean by that is contractors are already orchestrators of different sure. subtrades. So for example, in the UK, you know, some of the tier one or largest contractors we have, uh, they don't physically necessarily build, they, they subcontract a lot of things out. So you mm -hmm. might have someone someone else being subcontracted to deliver the floor package someone subcontracted to deliver the interior partitions package now they might actually have builders that come on site and then work but a lot of times it's this kind of orchestration of other trades and other uh, uh, materials that go into a building so with with off-site what we're trying to do is make it easier for uh, contractors to basically find the right uh, off-site supplier that could fulfill that uh, that package of work essentially so if you're looking uh, if you're looking for example for 
how do I make my floor uh, a bit more uh, emission friendly, uh, so, you know, lower carbon? How do I make it lighter? Um, is there another system I could use to kind of fulfill some of these specifications or performance targets I have better than the design I always go to, which is maybe poured concrete or something else. So this visibility challenge that we're tackling with our marketplace where we enable people to go there, find the right supplier for the right system that they're looking looking for and uh, use that in their building. It doesn't have to be a fully prefabricated building, but you can partially adopt these things for your various uh, parts of the building. So when you say marketplace, and I, I, I got this, I gleaned this from the previous episode with Mark and David, but the idea of a marketplace is also a, a kind of a phone book of connections in the industry. Yeah. It's not just a place to go find products or technology. It's a place to go find people yeah. as well. And, and so then you have this ability to connect. And this is a lot of in alignment with the work that I'm doing at, at Tech, which is it, when I don't know what I don't know, who do I need to talk to so that I get off on the right foot? And I think it's so interesting as a technology company delivering a product for offsite construction as well, that you're actually creating the connecting points so that people can be more successful in their business when they're delivering this kind of productized architecture almost or buildings in, in component in these larger assemblies of components. And and that to me, you're doing this hand holding for the benefit of the whole industry. You're connecting the dots. You're helping them help themselves, right? And 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 offer a wider range of services or products that they could potentially deliver to a to a client. Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why the the, the marketplace is free. Uh, there is no kind of gate to access it. Uh, we we saw it as a catalyst for the mm. industry to adopt offsite and you know shed some light into the supply chain what it can do because there are some fantastic buildings out there that have used offsite products and systems. Mm -hmm. um, so if we showcase them, connect that to who are the suppliers on that, who are the consultants on that as well. So you have this interconnected set of data where you can see a project you liked, find a supplier for it, find the consultants, uh, maybe on the architectural side or the structural mm -hmm. side or so it, it really kind of can help you establish some of those connections. We have tools to get you, put you in touch with them directly. And that obviously brings us to the, the, the second part of our, our product, which is called Construct, which is uh, the step you would take after you find something you, you're interested mm -hmm. in. So if I have a design I'm looking to build and I find, okay, I've got these two floor suppliers that I'm interested in. One might be a a timber wall cassette, the other might be a precast concrete slab, wildly different. Um, how would these apply to my right, design? Right. So that's where Coop Construct kicks in. And this is where our you know, workflow engine and all of the automation tools and computational design that we've done over the years kind of applies uh, to basically help you pick a product, upload a BIM model, apply that product to that BIM mm -hmm, model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're, we're really striving for it to be as simple an experience as that. So can you explain and, uh, how that kind of works? Because the, the idea, at least in my mind, is that the design team is going to come with a fairly generic set of models so that when they yeah. select the appropriate construction system, it might, it might 
go back and modify their design model a little bit based on different constraints of different assemblies, right? So if, if you had a concrete floor cassette versus a, a CLT floor cassette or something like that, those would have different constraints to them, which could change yeah. the layout. And so you don't want to overdo it on the design side, at least early. You want to you want to keep it like loose as much as much as you can, but still be going down a design direction. Can you talk about how that negotiation, that back and forth happens and how you help facilitate that so that people aren't redoing their work? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, this uh, kind of nicely segues into one of the, the, the second challenges we see with offsite construction, which is we call it variation, where, uh, you know, it's very easy to produce one million of the same house, uh, manufacture mm -hmm. it, uh, repeatable, uh, all the same. It's very hard to uh, basically say, I have this base design, but I need this wall moved by one mm -hmm. meter uh, for this one house. And I need this floor higher uh, uh, for this other variation of the, the design. So it's very hard to accommodate these uh, variations, which is kind of why we talk for, about uh, the mass customization uh, side of it. So coming back to that workflow and how do we keep people from going back and forth, we actually want to enable them to go back and forth uh, a little bit. But that's mean. So that's that's the trick. So in an ideal world, you would design the building with a specific system in mind for every single part of the building from day one, and it would get built. And you know that would most be efficient. amazing yeah. outcomes. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. In reality, that's not right. what happens. Right. For the vast majority of buildings, like uh, along of various points in the design, you might think, could I use an offsite system for this? So we're, we're basically trying to build on ramps at these various points to allow you to, to go in at any point and say, I want to test some products for this part of my building. It could be multiple systems at the same time. So we've had workflows where we've done floors, walls, uh, you know, ceilings, other things at the same time, or it could be just one of these systems. Uh, but the idea is to enable you to, to test uh, how the product would work in your specific building uh, taking into consideration the, the rules and the constraints of that particular product, right? And give you very rich metrics to be able to then make designs uh, and decisions, uh, whether you want to tweak the design, whether you want to tweak the product uh, configuration and kind of keep going. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask right there, if, if there is a, a method behind the digital or if there's a companion to the digital side, which is the people side to actually tap into the wisdom of the fabricator uh, or the, the general contractor or the designer, right? This kind of two way communication that's so important to yeah. to know what the potential pitfalls are, what the constraints are for the system, because when you say tweak a system, it's like that could mean a million different things, right? And you would want to talk to somebody right then yeah. and say, what can I do? What can't I do? What are the, what's the question I should be asking? Because these are the kinds of, the, this wisdom exists in the industry and it's leaving the industry without getting captured anywhere, right? And that's a, that's a side problem that I don't, I don't know that you guys are addressing or even have the ability to address or if anybody yeah. does because nobody's really doing it, right? It, the, but, but this whole idea of connecting to the, to the wisdom side along with the tools so that people make the best decisions because I, often we find that the tools or the products or the, the data itself doesn't offer that insight that we need from somebody who has the experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we do see this problem of you know brain drain in the industry, but also sheer workforce drain. Uh, there just aren't enough people to go around to build these things. And the knowledge of how these uh, uh, things are built is getting lost. So part of our, our approach is when we work with a manufacturer to put their system up on Coop is we work directly with that team that has that know-how. Um, and again, when you work with a manufacturer, it might not be one person. Uh, you know, there might be someone that knows very well how the thing actually gets assembled or, or built on the, the factory floor. There might be other people that know more about the design constraints of this thing. There might be other people that know about the logistics right. of this particular piece of, uh, of a construction. So we work with that entire team, essentially, to, to try and capture as many of those uh, facets of a product as mm -hmm. possible to basically package it up as the, the configurable product you see in Cope, essentially. So when you're working with a, a product in Cope, and you, you know, you, for example, you see a slider for a particular parameter or some aspect of that product, you, you know that uh, someone's spoken to that manufacturer and knows what the minimum and maximum is. And there's a reason it's those values. So you can't essentially go outside of what's permissible in that system. Yeah, so you basically get a great starting point of realistic expectations in what the par parameters are that are changeable, right? And and then exactly. if it's something, if I have an idea that goes outside of that, that's when I would want to connect with somebody and talk to them. Yeah. And there, there might actually be another step in between. So one of the, the really cool things we have in Cope is our optimization engine. So, you know, when you go to apply one of these products to your building, you, you always have a, a, you know, an immediate start. You have default values for everything. You can just press go and see what be a good starting point. Then you can tweak it and find actually if I if I tell uh, tell Cope I want slightly higher spacing for you know some of these internal studs or, or things in a in a wall cassette, I might get you know a more efficient layout. Right. Where our optimization engine kicks in is it allows you to uh, basically automate a lot of that heavy lifting and a lot of that back and forth essentially. So we have a very simple interface that allows people to say. I want these three things to vary, to, to essentially to change their values uh, in ways that are acceptable. And I have these five, 10 goals in mind. I want you know, minimal waste. I want maybe minimal cost, but you, know, you might be making different trade-offs in different types of designs. And then you press run, you run uh, our optimization. So engine on top of this. So we basically apply that product to your building thousands and thousands of times in the cloud, uh, we come back with what is uh, an optimal set of uh, designs. And you can obviously explore those designs and find the right trade-offs for your, your particular building, save that uh, design, and then continue working with the outputs, mm -hmm. uh, essentially. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the, the things, going back to that idea of the, uh, the back and forth between design tools, where probably the only one that I can think of right now, platforms out there that um, uses IFC as input and output. So we don't use it as a kind of dead end format. We, we take it as an input, we work with it, and we give you IFC back so that you can act, actually integrate it back into your design tools and use those outputs directly.
let's stick on that for a minute. How how has IFC been to work with? I mean, it's it's basically is is it <laughs> okay? So you're smiling. Tell tell us what you're thinking when I when I ask that yeah. question. Yeah, it's it's a it's a sticking point in the industry in the conversation right now, isn't it? Uh, it's not a perfect uh, standard by any means. It's a it's a decent schema. It is bloated. It is hard to work with. It's got complexities and layers, um, but uh, it does quite a few things right. Quite quite a few things wrong. Um, its redeeming quality is that it is the only one that pretty much everyone agrees on and most software packages uh, accept. So, you know, there's there's really only two approaches here. Either you make, well, three, let's say. Uh, either you have some closed source proprietary formats that only you know about, or you have some kind of open schema that you tell people about and everyone has to adopt yours, right. or you use this common standard, right? Mm. This is only one of these three. Mm. Um, we've tried all three, mm. and we've... Uh, We've kind of uh, ended up in in a slightly hybrid world, but uh, yeah, at the end of the at the end of the day, we wanted to maximize compatibility with uh, our customers' tools. Yeah. yeah. So we we didn't want to limit it to only Archicad users or only Navisworks users or this or that. Mm-hmm. So we we made a trade off of okay, let's spend a, quite a few engineering months on this problem trying to build tools that work with these uh, complicated IFC schemas. But the end result is that customers can upload these things uh, directly to our, our product and kind of hit the ground. And when you're talking now, about your obviously customers, we, you're talking about the design side or the construction side or both? Uh, a bit of both. So our, our customers are both from the contractor side uh, or the manufacturing mm-hmm. side. Right. Uh, there's there's some usage from the more kind of design architectural side, but that's not necessarily our core audience uh, at this point gotcha. in time. It's mainly mainly manufacturers that uh, want to speed themselves up. Uh, for example, when they respond to a tender, uh, they would use our tool to actually automate their own process and respond to that tender. You know, in five minutes, not five mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. Or contractors on the other side of the fence who would, uh, you know, similarly test different uh, products to, to kind of apply to the building. Right, right. So, are you staying on the IFC thing for a minute? Are you actively contributing back into that ecosystem of of the the standard to help it get to where you see it needing to go, or is there a a wall there that you're not willing to to go through? I, I think it's less about willingness and more about uh, time and opportunity and, uh, uh, you know, doing it at the right moment. So at the moment, we aren't contributing uh, in, in the sense that we're not you know, part of building Spart or trying to influence the standard itself because we, we just have too much to build and we need to move to sure. Yeah, I get that. So uh, you know, it's a fairly stable standard. It takes years for it to yeah. change. So it's going to be around for quite a while. So for us, the priority is obviously to to build for our customers as quickly as we can. Yeah. Now, but that doesn't mean that we won't be looking to contribute in the future. Yeah, I mean that 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 is a key component to it, right? It's it's like architects complaining about the AIA, but they're also members of the AIA saying, "What are you doing for us?" And it's like, "Well, what are you doing to help steer the AIA as a member too?" And it so it's 
it's not dissimilar from that in that the the building smart people who are participating in that are also contributing to steering where it goes but i know it's also there it is very slow moving and i can imagine that's really frustrating for bleeding edge tech companies to participate in as well when they also have to build a product and i mean it's it's complicated i i totally get it yeah and you know another way to look at participation is uh, actually putting out a tool that has good support for IFC input and outputs and uses it as the kind of the pass-through format, it, you know, there isn't much out there that does mm-hmm. that. Uh, there's viewers for IFC and, uh, you know, we're seeing some, some really cool things come out of the open source community with, uh, you know, uh, the, the Blender BIM side of things and IFC.js. But there aren't many tools that kind of use it as an input and then allow you to do stuff with it. Uh, Conic or recently another startup has, has been doing some really interesting things there. So I think even just having robust support for this is already kind of contributing uh, somewhat to that conversation and to, to that discussion uh, and enabling people to say, okay, like we can invest and we can follow this route as yeah. well. Because yeah. it, it would have been much more, much easier for us to just come up with our own closed format and uh, you know, call it a day. Mm, mm. So ultimately you decided to go down the IFC route for that. And, I, and I'm just wondering if that's something your customers have given you feedback on. What? Because I can imagine there's a, there's a good number of them. They're like, what is IFC? Like they don't even know that it's maybe there. But then there's, I'm sure there's other yeah. feedback that you've gotten that that has shown you that you made a good decision in this to go down that road. Yeah, and... It's it's been uh, less direct, as in like it's not like uh, customers going like, oh my god, you support IFC? Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's more like uh, I want to use your tool, and uh, I use these five tools. Uh, you know, can your tool connect to these? And being able to say yes, because four out of five of those export IFC, the other one does something else. We can work mm-hmm. with. That's what customers appreciate. Uh, not having to change their workflow too much essentially and being able to retain the investment that's frankly they've they've done over years into their right. tools right so a practice adopting revit or archicad they have years of investment sure. in training and standards and those things and being able to just press export ifc uh, is great for them now i don't don't want to dwell too much on the ifc side but we do support direct revit uploads mm-hmm. as well so for us it's all about giving users the least amount of friction mm-hmm. to to start playing with our our platform and, and using it and getting the benefits yeah sure this episode is sponsored by confluence i've invited randall stevens the ceo of avail to tell you about it in 2019 we held the inaugural confluence event which was designed to bring together the product managers the technology developers that are working on the products used daily in the aec industry and put them in the room with the design technology leaders from the practice side that are actually implementing and using these technologies. The goal isn't to sell anybody anything at these events. The goal is to get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working, and what would be the best products to develop to be implemented in the AECO industry. We've held these three-day confluence events the past four years and attracted over 100 attendees. We have an exciting agenda plan for our annual event in October. 
the theme this year is going to be focused around AI and machine learning and its applications in the AEC industry. You can learn more about Confluence at getavail.com slash Confluence. So I think, I think we've talked enough about IFC to your point. And, and I just yeah. think it's an interesting <laughs> side, side route that we, that we went down there, that we had the opportunity to go down. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you, you know, you talk about the tools that you're making, you're talking about different components and assemblies. And can you give us an idea of the types of projects people are actually doing with COPE so that we have some thing that we can put a picture in our mind to, um, like what kinds of buildings, what sizes of buildings, what kinds of spaces and, and things like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think that the, the cool answer to that is that it, we've seen pretty much anything in there. So we've seen single family residential, for example, we were working with a manufacturer from Canada, actually, uh, uh, who mostly applies their system to, to kind of, you know, detached houses, as they're called in the mm -hmm. UK. Um, and it's a single family's home, essentially. So, and they, we, we do the, inter the entire exterior envelope, essentially, with these wall cassettes. That's at one end of the spectrum. Uh, you might even use it for smaller things, such as inside uh, your, one of your apartment layouts or something like that. You might want to do your internal partitions from using a particular system, mm -hmm. or you want, might want to optimize your plasterboard or drywall usage, uh, where we have some fantastic results in uh, kind of uh, reducing waste there. So it could be as, as small as three walls, uh, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we have commercial office building towers in London that uh, we're looking at precast concrete slabs, for example, and a few other systems. And they were able to save a large amount of money to not uh, break any rules here. <laughs> nice. Uh, what I'm allowed to say. Can we talk about that drywall example for a second? I, I would be interested to hear yeah. that because I think... A lot of times coming at the problem from an architect's point of view, I, I read an article recently, it's like architects aren't going to save the world. And it was speaking to, you know, the carbon emissions and sustainability and one project at a time, kind of coming at it back and saying, we want to save the world, we should do everything we can to implement sustainable practices, uh, renewable energy, uh, lightweight systems that, you know, to, things that you can take apart later, think about the whole building life cycle on every project. Yeah. Ultimately, our clients are paying for something. Oftentimes, they want the cheapest thing that they can get right now because they're not interested in the 50-year life cycle of the building because they're not going to be around then, as an example. Um, and so uh -huh. what is our part in that? And, and just trying to kind of say, can we just be realistic about that? Now, at the same time, as an architect coming at the problem and saying, look, by using this tool, I've saved the project or I've given the project the ability to use less drywall because we're reusing the waste pieces in, an, in another manner. But then when a contractor takes over, they're just going to do it how they do it. Right. And so your audience is the contractor. So I think you're coming at this from from the other side and saying our contractors are buying into this idea. They're looking at the savings, the waste reusability that they can it's not really waste anymore right it's it's getting put back into the yeah. project so kind of talk through what you're seeing happen in the industry there because i i love hearing that that's coming from the contractor side yeah and uh, uh i have a pretty good anecdote i guess with the usage of both the contractor and uh 
off-site builder side, mm-hmm. actually. So I'll get into that in okay. a second. But uh, to, to your wider point of like, what can architects do, and and you know, what should we be doing? I think one of the reasons we approach Cope the way we do is, and allow you to do these kind of partial uh, updates or or partial applications of a product or building. So take only this wall, or only look at floors, uh, you know, in this area, or uh, look at all the internal partitions that have this type uh, of code, essentially. One of the reasons we're approaching that is because not every building is a brand new building uh, that's going to be built using the system from scratch, mm-hmm. right? It might be a renovation. It might be that uh, actually the, the shell and core are already up and it's later in the design stage that we're, they're, they're even hearing about this tool or getting a chance to use it. Um, so actually supporting all of those different points in the life cycle of a, of a building uh, it is, I think, one of the ways we could be looking at this. So not everything is built from scratch. Uh, not everything has to be decided from day one. Some of these things uh, can actually be uh, swapped in and out later on. And you can try to find solutions where you might normally not look for them. Um, Coming back to that uh, analogy with the contractors and the, the offsite builders. So obviously contractors would like to eliminate waste. Uh, Say save money uh, on, on the plasterboard and especially time, uh, essentially. So if you can come up with a good layout that kind of optimizes for installation speed uh, and minimal amount of cuts, it might use a tiny bit more material, but you might have less waste and be 30% faster, for example. So this is where, you know, we've seen usage of our optimization engine kick in and be able to surface these options that they hadn't considered before, right? On the other end of the spectrum, we might have, uh, we've worked with an offsite builder who, who was uh, using modular. So they were building volumetric uh, modules. And obviously they, they needed something for their internal partitions and they were using plasterboard, but they had an automated cutting line, mm. right? So all of a sudden you don't really mind as much if you have to do complex cuts anymore. So um, we were able to, to essentially take that into account and optimize for simple versus complex cuts. And, you know, is it a human cutting? Is it a machine cutting to have different trade-offs of speed and uh, waste material, essentially. So that you maximize your outcomes for, for your particular uh, set of circumstances. I would imagine also at that point, you're actually talking about dollars to produce something, right? Whereas that's very conceptual yeah. for on the archi- on the design side and when the contractor sees it and you're saying there's a checkbox for complex cuts versus simple cuts. And what does that mean? Uh, Cause I think we only do simple cuts and what, and then you can actually have a conversation about the cost and the ROI for implementing a system yeah. like that into their outfit that they maybe don't have already. I think that's a really interesting kind of outcome that can happen during this process. And it has, we, we've seen our customers do exactly that. So, you know, we obviously uh, produce highly detailed outputs and highly detailed uh, takeoff from those outputs. So very accurate dollar numbers and quantities and all of these things. But the cool thing about that is, uh, you know, going back to our optimization engine, it allows people to say, I don't know what this simple or complex cut thing does. So I'm, I want to play around with that, vary that a bit. I also don't know if... 
I should cut my plasterboard at the uh, you know edge of a door or in the middle of a door, or you know should I consider rotating things ninety degrees? Is that more efficient? I'm not good. right. So they they say okay, I want these things to vary, uh, and you know what are your goals then? Uh, well, I would like to minimize for cost, for example. So then you're able to run uh, these things at Cope and see what kind of uh, results are produced for what kind of different inputs and trade offs. So you can then spot, okay, actually the complex cut thing is making the cost double because, well, I don't know, I'm just giving an example here, but uh, you, know, you might see that actually rotating the panels in certain circumstances gives a uh, you know, 5% uh, saving. So it, it kind of gives you the opportunity to, to find out what the best uh, application of a particular product might be. Because you, it's like you said earlier, uh, manufacturers know how that product works, but the architect might not mm -hmm. be familiar with it, mm -hmm. right? So it's about giving them the space where they can explore, they can play with it. Uh, you can kind of get to start to, to learn how the system works and optimize it for your own particular needs. When you're creating that optimized, and I'm going to put that in, in my famous podcasting air quotes, because you have talked to somebody to figure out what the optimal way to do something is that's one data point right you might talk to another contractor and they'd be like what are you talking about this this way is way faster better whatever and and so then you get additional data points to inform maybe options in how you approach things or maybe you you decide nope this is the best way based on outcomes that we've seen or the things that we've measured for for example i think it's so interesting because i I mean, I've gone through the same thing. If I remodel a room in my house and I need to re-drywall it, I would do it a certain way based on my experience or what I think, maybe my preconceived ideas. But if I have a, a somebody who come in who's done drywall for 30 years, which I did, and they say, nope, we do it like this. And, and it was like kind of yeah. mind-blowing to me to say, oh, that's how the pros do it. That is way different than what I thought. Uh, in my, because I don't work in that trade. I don't do that every single day. And I don't, and then I even get to say why, right? Because that's, that's the important part. Well, why do you do it like that? Oh, here's five reasons why we do it like that. And, and so that you're yeah. doing that on behalf of the design teams so that you get this optimization output, optimized output by having those conversations with contractors up front, they're sharing that information with you to their benefit because they're the ones buying this product potentially, right? So I'm just interested in that whole, the way that that all kind of happens and unfolds. And you've seen, you've been able to ask the questions behind, behind the scenes of how, how and why do you do it like this? And I think that that is always something that comes late in the game in traditional construction practices, which is like, I drew this detail. Here's how I want you to build it. And the contractor's like, we don't build like that. <laughs> we don't do it like that. We do it like this. And we only learn that at the end. But what you're doing is you're injecting that optimization into the beginning. Yeah, because it's that all that knowledge and know-how is basically embedded into that product and how it's applied, right. right? So the second you apply it, you're you're using that extracted knowledge and experience. And you know, one of the funny things with something as simple as plasterboard is, uh, like you said, the pros do it one way, but then you figure out actually the pros do it a different way in the UK versus the US, sure. 
And actually, if they use this particular brand of plasterboard, then they actually do it slightly differently again, because that manufacturer has, I know, some weird edge or, uh, you know, they make the panel slightly uh, uh, wider than the rest or, or something like that. So it's all of these little moments that, uh, of knowledge that get embedded into these, mm. these products. And uh, you get to benefit from that when you apply them with sometimes without knowing. Other times when you run them enough times, you start to suss it out yourself. So it kind of gives you a glimpse into the black box a bit. Uh, you start to kind of reverse engineer it in your head, if you will. Um, you know, if you've applied the same thing to a, a wall a hundred times, you start to spot the patterns. So you might understand how that product works. Um, but the, the idea is that we're trying to, to kind of uh, shrink down that manufacturer and put them next to you on your desk mm -hmm. every time you, you, you try to play with one of these uh, products. It's this whole uh, co-pilot thing. We're hearing everybody, <laughs> everybody used the yeah. word, right? Yeah. Uh, recently with the AI, you've got cope.ai. You must be using AI. You must have a co-pilot yeah. too, right? That's what you're talking about. But this idea of having that expertise available in the co as a co-creation in the process of, of designing yeah. and building, I think is, it's an, it's an appropriate analogy to 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 make and I, I love how you kind of framed it as shrinking them down and making them available all the time right there on your desk i mean i'd love to have a little talking version next to me on my desk right that tells you <laughs> no don't do that you know i uh, think architects this is as close to it as we can get already have that no don't do that no don't do that no don't do it like that you're doing it wrong you're doing it wrong yeah that that's the life of an architect. It main, yeah, mainly takes the form of Revit errors, but... Uh, right, right. Warnings and errors, yes. <laughs> Are you sure? Exactly. Are you sure you want... Just a little slap on the hand every time. Yeah, a, a physical manifestation. Yeah. Well, you've done, you've done that wrong, so... Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you the option to delete everything. <laughs> You mentioned a couple of project types. Are there, are there larger project types that this is being implemented on as well? These... these uh, custom, construction the you know are, are they doing it on on mid-rise high-rise and these these prefabricated cassettes i can yeah, only assume so, the answers yeah yeah so on the commercial side we we've seen it on high-rise offices in london so quite quite large uh, buildings uh, we've also seen this used for large span buildings so you know monster warehouses or, or things like that uh, we're not necessarily warehouses but a very long and wide building with all the you know, uh, one one floor essentially, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and by one floor I mean uh, one extra floor apart from ground floor, mm -hmm. just to be extra clear. Yeah. That, um, so it, it's kind of every typology in between. Okay. Uh, okay. And and that, that's part of the beauty of it that it's fairly agnostic uh, in, in terms of uh, what type of building you use because it's it's not about the type of the building but about the uh, the construction system that you're applying. And so when you're talking about these components, these assemblies, these cassettes, uh, I think about, you know, manageable size components. But when you're talking about designing a building, you're talking about a site, you're talking about a structural system, you're talking about some of these larger mm -hmm. components. Are you dealing with those as well? We are dealing with some structural components already, yes. So uh, uh, I'm trying to think what the, the right example would be, but... Um, some of these systems are already structural, so uh, there are, uh, you know, for example, yeah, you know, we have SIPs and CLT systems that, uh, you know, are load bearing mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to take that into consideration. There's obviously the precast concrete stuff is structural 
And this is where, uh, you know, just having a floor that you're applying these things to isn't enough. You need to know about the columns in, in that uh, building and some of these other elements, which is why we take in that entire BIM model as the inputs and you take those things into consideration. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're then able to go around the columns or, you know, whatever it is that product needs to do essentially to get a good layout. I, I know we're getting close to our, our time here, but I would love it if you could explain and maybe as a final chapter in this episode, kind of what the user experience is like. You tapped into that earlier on in the conversation when you're designing your tools, yeah. but paint a picture for someone who is a user of Cope, and maybe you can do it from a couple of different vantage points on the construction side, maybe on the design side. I know yeah. they're they're probably a little different, but what what do people experience when they're using cope and 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 talk about what it's actually like like what is this running on your computer is it running in the cloud just just talk through that general a general scenario of the day in the life of a cope user from a couple of different vantage points that's a that's a great question let me see if i can do it justice okay. um so first things first, Cope is all cloud-based. So everything we do is running in the cloud. Nothing runs on your computer. And the, the way you interact with our software is through your browser. So um, the marketplace has uh, you know one particular web app that you're interacting with. And our Cope Construct product is uh, uh, another one. And they're, they're interlinked. So coming back to the, the, the user journey, let's, uh, let's assume you're a contractor. Right. And you have a license of cope and you get a, a new project in and uh, maybe it's a tender stage or you know, maybe it's even on site and you're just trying to figure out, I think there might be a better way to do these internal partitions, right. Than this kind of uh, frame, uh, you know, stick uh, frame or something, timber yeah. framing plus yeah. exactly. Right. So you have this idea like, okay, I might, I might want to try something out here. Right. So you go onto the, the, Coke Marketplace, and uh, you know you go to the regional one for US or UK, wherever you're based, and you might look for things that uh, uh, you know apply to walls. So you might look for uh, any type of system that can do internal partitions. You might say, I want this to be within, uh, you know, the supplier for this to be within a hundred miles of this particular address because I want to keep uh, logistics. Uh, uh, and kind of transport low for environmental impact reasons. And you might want to, you know, add other filters to kind of find the right supplier to say, I want them to be accredited with this particular thing. And, uh, you know, all of these other things that we give you to kind of find the right supplier. You then find a couple of them. You, you might compare them. You might look at the projects they've done. You might uh, then actually some of them might have what we call a flex configurator, which is a configurator that, um, you can use in isolation without a project. So it's just kind of a, a little sandbox environment to get a sense of what their system might be like. Um, so you play around with those and you know you narrow it down to, let's say, two manufacturers. One is a, a timber wall cassette and the other is a, let's say, a SIPS provider. Right? Okay. And you add them, uh, you add them to what we call a supply chain. So it's kind of like a, a favorites or a bookmarks folder, right? The, the cool thing about COPE is that everything you do is collaborative in the sense that you are within your company account and all of your colleagues can see all of these things you're doing. So as soon as I've created that supply chain, I give it a name and you know, these suppliers go into that supply chain, my colleagues can find it you know, the next time they log on. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
right? So, so I might say, this is a supply chain for this particular project, or it might be for this region, or it might be for whatever reason you want, essentially. Now, after you've chosen these suppliers, the next step would be, okay, I want to test this out on my particular project. So you go into Code Construct, you create a new project, you give it the address, you upload your BIM model, uh, we, you know, we process that model, we give you a 3D viewer to interact with it to see what the preview looks like, and then you go into the configurator, essentially. And this is the step where you say, I want this building to be used as the input. And I want to use products from this particular supply chain. So it'll be one of the two suppliers I've uh, shortlisted, essentially. And I want to apply it to internal partitions in this building, mm. We give you all the knobs uh, and kind of sliders and controls to tweak that design if you want. But by default, you would just press run. And just based on the classification so, of the objects that are in the BIM model that you uploaded, you're replacing those with something else from this other supply chain that workflow that exactly. you created. Okay. So, you know, the product you've selected already knows it, it gets applied to internal partitions, for example. So when you press run, we uh, take your model, we run all of this computation in the cloud. Uh, we, we take all of those partitions, we re, you know, uh, kind of isolate them from the building. We apply the product to that. So we panelize it and we create all the internal studs and all of the things that might go into that product. Um, and then we, we give you the output puddle that you can just drop in to overlay precisely onto that uh, input okay. model, essentially. And aside from the actual BIM model that is produced, you also get very rich metrics. So number of panels, number of cassettes, you know, square metrage of things, costs, all of these other metrics to help you make a decision. And where are those costs coming so from? Our, are those costs coming from the panel, panel manufacturer? And are they updated yeah. very often? Like, how, Because yeah. to me, there's the, the whole idea of files, right? Is that it's kind of dead uh -huh. as soon as you hit save, right? And so you, yeah. if you have the yeah. old costs and they're not the new costs, what good is it? So, so I would just love it if you would if you would plug in to hear how you implement that side of it because that's so important to actually make a decision whether you're going to use this or not at this point. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a companion experience to all of this, which is from the manufacturer side, where they create and upload their products onto our platform, and that's where they tell you know they input the cost and, and you know all of these metrics. And it's a fully versioned experience. Uh, so actually they have a very cool experience of, um, you know, creating a product and when they're ready, they hit publish, they make it available publicly or not. Mm -hmm. So we still allow people to actually keep things private if they want mm -hmm. to. And, you know, they might work on a version two of their wall cassette. They might start tweaking the parameters or the cost, or, you know, maybe the length has changed or right. something like that. And, and, you know, they could have 15 versions in between. Mm -hmm. And then when they're ready, they go like, okay, I'm now ready. I'll hit publish again. So we publish a version two that the other users might. So you're relying on them though, to update their information as if it were cost as the example, they do need to go yeah. in and, and keep up to date. And are they doing that? I mean, that to me seems like yes. something yeah. they would want to keep their finger on the pulse of, because if people are using their panelizing configurator for their system, they want to make sure that their potential future customers have the right information. 
Exactly. And that's uh, actually why we have this kind of self-survey experience for uh, allowing manufacturers to, to control some of these things because we, they wanted to be able to, to tweak these settings without having to go through us essentially, mm. right? So uh, we, we try to remove ourselves from the process as much as we can and let the, the kind of the two sides interact uh, directly. So cool. manufacturers keep that up to date because it's in their interest yeah. uh, to kind of keep it up to date. Uh, so coming back to the contractor side, uh, I've now applied this wall cassette to my, my, my internal partitions and I switch it out for the other product that I saw, maybe the SIPS one. I apply it again, play with the uh, you know the sliders again. I can run optimization on this and decide actually I like option number 17 out of this. That fits my uh, uh, things perfectly. So I save these two results. And I, I like that you mentioned the dead files comment because uh, this is a very live environment with manufacturers tweaking their products constantly. Uh, so, so we've built this feature of, of creating these snapshots of, of your results where you save one of these things and it's there for perpetuity, not tweakable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you want to tweak it, it can go back into the configurator and you continue tweaking it, but it's there kind of safely kind of uh, uh, stored um, so you can always get back to it. So at this point, so if it, I have once... these two options, have it, has it gone through your optimization? engine yet or not yeah it could have okay. it could have yeah it could have gone already so you could save you know one of the options that our optimization engine produced or you could use that as a base to then tweak the inputs and, and some of the parameters uh framework and get something even more custom and uh, the, the idea is that once you are happy with one of these you save it and that's what's not tweakable anymore yeah. but you can always go yeah. back and tweak it for no me. you need the ability so to the point with... have a snapshot it can't be live all the time exactly. like we no, exactly. we decided this is the thing we decided and, and we're going to move forward with that yeah and this this very much echoed the kind of the bim workflows you know from the the international isos of you, know, you have your work in progress area and you have your actual approved area that's uh, kind of been saved sure i'm not saying we're replacing a cd these things should still go in there but it kind of helps you kind of manage the, this life cycle of experimenting and then getting to a point that you like yeah so now that we've had these these two products applied to my building i want to choose one of them right so i will put them in our comparison tool and it will give the numbers side by side and tell me okay this one's got 23 percent wastage this one's got 15, but this one costs more. And you're able to kind of make that comparison. At any point, you're able to take these outputs and actually save them. Get a, a JSON, CSV, Excel file out. You get your, you know, raw geometry out. All of these things, uh, you know, we will happily produce. So you've done your comparison and now you're basically at the point where you found a product you like. It's a good layout that saves you some money and some time. What's the next step? Well, the next step of this would be that you might want to get some uh, either more detailed metrics or some other kind of outputs from this design. So you go to what we call a deliverables uh, section. And this is where you can produce further outputs from this design. So if we take our internal partition example, this is where I can say, I now want drawings of each one of those wall cassettes. And what we do here is uh, actually quite quite magical, uh, really, where you say, you kind of configure your drawing. You say, I want a three sheets. I want these things on the title block. I want a top view and a side view. I want my dimensions to be running, not segmented, or all of these settings. 
and you hit run again, and we produce that drawing on demand. Mm. For every single one of those wall cassettes with a bomb on the title, uh, title block and producing both PDFs and DWG. So you put it into your CAD system or your factory floor if you have a factory. I think I have a, so, I think I have. And that's just one example. Let, let me just switch over here. I, I'm, I'm going to insert this into, can you hear that? You know, there's a there's an applause going on right now, uh, and the reason I ah, put great. the applause in is because uh, this whole idea of automating the drawing side is so overdue, mm -hmm. and it's so interesting to yeah. me that architects still are competing on doing construction documents. That is not where their mm -hmm. value lies. Their value, th there may be decisions that are documented in those construction documents on how a certain detail needs to work out, or how the assembly, or the performance. But it's not in actually doing the drawing. And so it's yeah. just music to my ears to hear you say that you that's great you to hear. Automate yeah, the whole you know, system and, and the drawings and the and the output because that is not where we should be spending our time competing like actually spending our time which we bill for on projects. We should be billing for things that are way more important than that. Exactly. And you know, we produce these drawings like for every individual uh, uh, assembly essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we, what we're working on right now is actually producing uh, general arrangement drawings as well. Um, so a kind of a, a full floor plan uh, to see how these things are laid out in the floor plan. And the real beauty of this is it's it's a drawing engine really where um, our components come in as IFC components and we don't know much more about them. And yet we're still able to dimension them accurately every single notch and mm. not have overlapping dimensions and... and we're, we're, you know, we're architects at heart, so the drawings that we spit out are clean, nice drawings that you would not be embarrassed to show to your associate. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's a good extra. That's extra the kind cool of the, the, the benchmark. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, and it's taken us a long time to get, yeah. get to this level where the drawings are so crisp and usable. And uh, yeah, so you produce all of these outputs, right, from your, for your design. At this point, you can pretty much move into whatever tool you want. You can go back to your design tool, tweak your design, and try again. Upload a new design. Uh, you could use it as a reference. Okay, I'm super happy with these internal partitions. I'm going to leave them as they are. And one of the, the, the important factors here is that, let's say you're using Revit. Uh, this isn't a Revit family that uh, you can then click edit on and tweak it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know change how it's put together that would make it go outside of those manufacturing rules, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. This is a, an IFC file you link in like you would an external file. And that means that all of those kind of manufacturing constraints and rules are still kind of respected, mm -hmm. right? Obviously you can still go into IFC files and edit them. Uh, you know, for people that uh, might not know that, uh, probably the my favorite tool to do that is Notepad uh, for <laughs> nice. IFC files that okay. are, uh, uh, dot ifc extension yeah. but the idea is that it's it's a fairly uh, kind of uh you know snapshot in moment this is what the partitions are right, right. and from there you have your costs and all of these other outputs and uh, you know we we're working on other integrations to kind of push it into the next step but i can tell you that some of our customers were using these to to produce basically uh uh XYZ files and cutting files that were going straight into their CNC machines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's take a quick break 
to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Troxel Plus. Troxel is now offering memberships. That's right. You can now directly support what we're doing here. With the Troxel Plus membership, you will get your own private feed for ad-free episodes of the podcast, the show notes right in your podcast app and in your inbox, your own ad-free copy of every Troxel AEC tech newsletter delivered directly to your inbox, and additional member-only content over time. For a limited time, there's a special launch offer. Get $20 off your first year when you sign up today. Go to trxl.co slash launch20. That's all one word. There's no spaces. trxl.co slash launch20 for $20 off your first year just for you early adopters. The goal here is for Troxel Podcast and the newsletter to add value to our industry and also to you in your career. And you can help make that happen by becoming a member today. Go to trxl.co slash launch20. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I was going to say there has to be then a connection to the actual production of the, the, yeah. the items. And, and at that point, you have it. And so once you really nail down the design and the decisions and you've made your way through the different phases of design, at that point, that can actually go directly to the manufacturer to produce those parts. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can't speak too much of, uh, you know, uh, about roadmap, I guess, but, you know, you could imagine that this side of the contractor experience will be linked to the manufacturing experience mm-hmm. uh, at one point. Yeah. Um, you know, from the manufacturing experience, you know, that different user persona, it would actually be a very similar workflow. The, the difference might be that they might have more detail in the outputs. They might have, you know, uh, G-codes, bat out and all of these other things. And they might want to keep these things private and not share them with the rest of the, the marketplace, or they might be doing this to respond to a tender or, or, or something like that. But the basic mechanism of select the products, upload your uh, bin file, hit apply, uh, is, is still the kind of the core mechanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to be totally clear, because I'm not sure it is totally clear from from the listener's perspective, but the the initial layout is happening in their tool of choice it is going round trip through cope and then back into their tool of choice it may be the same tool it might be a different Mm -hmm. tool at that point but it but what they're not doing in cope is they're not moving the walls around they're not adjusting geometry that they've drawn somewhere else in cope cope is taking that geometry it's doing the processing to it it's giving the output that you then link back into the original or another design tool where you can then look mm-hmm. at the original versus the, the the new cope optimized version. It might be in a different location, maybe a little bit, maybe something's changed a little bit, and then you would tweak your original model to kind of match that at that point. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. Um, we So, you know, you're not moving walls and doing those things in cope at the moment, yeah. right? Um, one of our earliest prototypes actually was doing this uh, live in Revit. Uh, so you are selecting a wall and saying, I want to use this uh, this particular system. And it would respond uh, in almost real time to those changes and kind of recompute in the cloud and come back down and reapply those things to Revit. Um, you know, uh, we're still technically able to do the, that kind of workflow, mm-hmm. uh, but we, we've seen slightly more demand uh, um, on the, the kind of 
managed process where you have full versioning for the files you upload, full versioning for the outputs. Uh, you know, there's full version for the, the actual compute that happens because uh, uh, that's maybe something that I haven't spoken about yet. But in our workflow engine, you know, we obviously publish a lot of these workflows ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these uh, things you run, but we actually have the capability for customers to upload their own uh, bit of code, their own bit of logic and run it in our infrastructure and still make use of the optimization engine and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but they can retain complete control of their IP. We have some really cool enterprise solutions for that. Maybe final question here and maybe maybe kind of a boring subject, but I'm interested because I think it I think it's just different than what people are used to. How does this change the LOD uh, narrative? Because when you're think is it coming at this from a designer and again, just the architectural career that I've had, different phases of design equal a different LOD when it comes to BIM, right? So the level of detail that you have to get to, obviously it's a lower number in the early stages and a higher number in the final stages. A lot of people have uh, arguments on the internet about what number should be at what stage and how high that number should go and, and, and all of those things. But, but here it really seems like what you're doing is you're saying, keep it simple and let the let cope handle the level of detail to whatever it needs to be for the manufacturer to make the piece and the manufacturer drives the level of detail versus the client demanding an LOD whatever 400 500 uh, 800 <laughs> as it might, the mythical exactly. 800 but it's it's interesting to me yeah. to to for you to say no keep it simple on the design side will give the the who, the person who's making the thing, the the level of detail that their machines need to make the thing. Yeah, and either Cope is completely uh, capable of going all the way down to like every single position of every nail, and we've done that for uh, a volumetric customer, for example, where we actually lay out the, the points where that machine, the robot, will actually come and like nail something, right? So it's just a position in space, but it's still in the model, mm -hmm. actually. So, um, you know, we can go into that level of detail, but it, it's this kind of happy middle ground we found that works best where uh, it's, it, it might not be the, the, the full level of detail of like what goes into manufacturing because you don't necessarily need every bolt to see as a contractor, right? Uh, but it's also not just a, a monolithic wall type of solution that you might be drawing a wall in Revit, yeah. right? It's this happy medium where it satisfies both what the contractor or, you know, the spec we call them specifiers. So it could be contractor or architect or whoever is using the tool to kind of test these designs and also enough level of detail so that the manufacturer would know how to, to manufacture it, but it doesn't need to replace their, you know, uh, inventor or Katia or like SolidWorks files or some of these other things they might have to kind of do some of their solution. It obviously can, but it doesn't have to. So, most products will probably be in this happy medium. That's useful for, for everyone. There might be others that actually, there's two versions of the product published. There's a, uh, a version that everyone can use, which is this happy medium. And there might be a private version the manufacturer has that has the full detail, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, or vice versa. So it's, it very much depends on the system and the manufacturer, like, like you mentioned. And, and then when you're talking about this type of way, this way of building, and you're talking about, off-site construction and industrialized 
construction techniques and prefabrication. And there's also like the owner side of that equation, which is what if they, if that they wanted a quote unquote digital twin, right. Of some level of detail of their built project so that they can manage it, do facility, do facilities management on it after the fact, do uh, simulations or whatever you might want to do in a digital twin. It seems like the data's there. You just have to decide what level you want to see it at, what and why it would matter based on if the things you might want to do to that building in the future. But but like you said, you have the ability to go to every bolt placement, every nail placement, it, but not everybody needs that kind of detail. And I'm just interested to hear maybe last thing here is if owners are getting value out of this too that has been unrealized before. Yeah, and I guess it depends on their involvement in that construction and design process, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there's various different methods of procurement, uh, you know, so in the UK, you'd have something like design and build where the end user or client uh, would say, you know, say, I want this building, and then the contractor would, would win that and, uh, you know, deliver it as a kind of, here's the key, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they might, they might be quite hands-off in that process. Mm-hmm. You might have clients that are actually... Uh, very sophisticated in terms of their, uh, you know, facility management and have specific requirements and, and all of these things. W- one of the, uh, you know, another one of these benefits uh, and kind of early decisions we made with Coke to output actual BIM models of these assemblies and be open with all the data we produce so that you can access it, uh, you know, using uh, either directly downloading it from the result page or through our API is we give you all the data you want so you can then put that into your uh, model that you hand over for then the, the kind of the facility management site. So we're, we're not going to try and go into that because that's not what we do. There are fantastic tools out there that kind uh, of help you with that transition from as built to facility management. And essentially we've tried to make it as compatible as we can nice. with uh, existing workflows. So, uh, you know, our sweet spot is this, uh, you know, design to constructability. Mm-hmm. Uh, portion where it's not an early stage feasibility tool. There's plenty of tools out there that that do a great job. It's not a, a kind of a digital twin like uh, you know see your sensors overlaid uh, to a, a model in operations kind of stage. Again, fantastic tools out there. We're in this kind of very underserved part of the market where you're going from a design to construction, and that's when the kind of the, you know the rubber meets the road, and you're making that final decision, okay, this is how that wall will actually be built, irrespective of what uh, the architect might have drawn or what the spec might say. This is the physical embodiment of that yeah. construction element. Right. It's an earlier stage digital twin, or it's a precursor to the to the actual physical output. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And, you know, we've, uh, we, we've had customers use this together with early stage feasibility tools, right? So, you know, we've had some of our previous products like Unitize kind of help you do that. And, uh, you know, they're, they integrate very nicely with those kind of solutions. Um, so it really is designed to, to kind of have these on ramp, on and off ramps at pretty much any point of the uh, design uh, life cycle. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Radu, this has been a fun conversation and I appreciate uh, sharing everything that you've shared. It, it's and I really appreciate just kind of going through the journey of what it's like to use a tool like this and the things that are possible with it, because you are doing 
like you, you just said it, you're serving an underserved area where the rubber meets the road, where the design actually needs to get created, fabricated, built, and uh, to really look to the future of raising the level of production in that way, we need tools that support that. And so kudos to you and the team for, for making that happen. And so uh, I'm going to send everybody to your website and to follow you guys on LinkedIn and all the other social media where you participate. Is there anything else that you want to let the audience know about or, or tell them to send them to anything like that to, to wrap up here? Um, no, I'd just like to say massive thank you for inviting us. And uh, it's been a, it's been a blast to have, uh, have this chat and yeah, come talk to us if you want to do offsite. We love hearing from all sorts of companies that are involved in the construction arena from architecture to contractors to manufacturers. We'd love to hear your thoughts on offsite. All right, Radu, thank you so much for, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co. And I'll talk to you again next week.